Welcome to episode 36 of Justice with John Carmen, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with your host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Today, we're going to talk about mitigation measures for the COVID pandemic. Numbers are starting to get crunched, and there is some data coming in suggesting that the lockdown measures we've all endured over the last few months have not produced the desired results. But first, we'll look at the mandatory mask topic with a bit of a twist. One of the stranger aspects of this controversy is the fact that nearly everyone in Canada seems to have forgotten that we've been down this road before, quite recently as a matter of fact. Back in 2014, hospitals around the country began pushing vaccinate or mask policies, VOM for short. They were trying to get hospital staff to vaccinate against the seasonal flu. And if people refused, they would be forced to wear a mask as a condition of employment. The nursing unions fought back and filed grievances. And they won several times. Twice in Ontario, as a matter of fact, in 2015 and 2018, when an arbitrator ruled against the policies, citing a lack of evidence on the effectiveness of masks in preventing virus transmission. Just last December 2019, a few short months before COVID hit, the Nurses' Union in British Columbia settled with the Health Employers Association of BC, effectively negating their VOM policy, with the decision to wear or not to wear a mask being left up to the professional discretion of the nurses. In these arbitration judgments, we see a lot of evidence was presented, both pro and con, on the effectiveness of masks and vaccinations, and, I repeat, those opposing mandatory masks won. And then everyone, yours truly included, completely forgot about it. I wasn't reminded of it until I saw a Twitter thread on it about a month ago by journalist Alex Berenson, who's been a harsh critic of the pandemic response and has written two books, Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, Parts 1 and 2. Bestsellers, by the way. Anyway, does any of this surprise you, John? No, not at all. There's been a lack of science from the get-go where there's just lots of fear, uh, lots of speculation, uh, lots of, well, you know, maybe uh, this is going to kill millions of people and maybe this and maybe that. And, uh, you know, maybe lockdowns will work. Uh, but 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 actual hard science is uh is in short supply and it seems politicians um are going more by by speculation and and so far um not seeing a lot of evidence right yeah but i mean it seems to me that this is so relevant you know the fact that we went through this i mean i i have to stop and tell you my little anecdote here which is that you know i have a, a relative in the healthcare industry and uh, that person was actually involved in this controversy starting in 2014. Uh, the thing is, when the COVID thing came up, we never discussed it once. Our minds never went back to this. Uh, she had been fighting this mask vaccine or mask policy. And when the COVID thing hit, we just totally forgot it. And it seems like everybody else's minds have gone blank about it as well. I mean, we actually have arbitrators ruling 
that you know masks are not effective or that it isn't provable and the the science is weak and we have the nurses union fighting it as late as 3 months before the the pandemic hits and winning and yet just like everybody's minds were just wiped clean you know so anyways i just wanted it's to it's kind of like that, that, that a victim that's uh, the men in black zapper where uh he uh, moves the dial and then hits the button and you get this bright flash. And depending on whether he's moved the dial down to uh, two weeks or two hours or two months or two years, yeah. just wipe out all previous memory of everything that's happened in the last uh, two years. Because, yeah, as you say, as recently as December of 2019, the uh, nurses in British Columbia were fighting successfully. The BC Nurses Union argued that uh, it was wrong of the... BC health system and the health minister, the, the health authorities to demand that any nurse that did not get the annual flu shot must wear a mask. And the nurses fought this successfully. And, and the health authority, the health minister backed down and said, well, you know, we should just work on some voluntary compliance. And, uh, and then, uh, there's actually a reported decision in Ontario from December of 2015 where the labor arbitrator uh, went through extensive documents to um, uh, come to the conclusion that there isn't strong science to back up the benefit of masks for protecting patients. There wasn't enough science there to justify inconveniencing the nurses because the nurses were asking for a broad exemption. They weren't just saying, you know, a nurse with a health condition with sensitive skin should be exempted. They were just saying, no, nurses should not have to wear masks in hospitals uh, because mask wearing is just not useful or, or necessary for protecting patients. And the nurses won. Right. And I noticed, well, this is healthcare and it's usually at the provincial level. And I don't think any provinces brought in mandatory masks. I could be wrong. I know that jurisdictions, smaller ones have, you know, like cities and counties and things like that. So maybe this is why, maybe they actually had lawyers that remembered that this actually had been brought before uh, arbitrators. And, well, you're, uh, you know, you're quite, you're, you're quite correct that the, uh, to date, as of as of right now, in early September, there's no province that has mandated this, but the the mask mandate has grown very rapidly. You cannot fly uh, on an airplane without wearing a mask, and uh, mm. I believe the uh, Transportation Act uh, permits an exemption, but you actually need a, a doctor's note or doctor's letter, which you have to pr provide. Uh, in contrast to say city of Calgary says, well, uh, there are health exemptions, uh, but a store owner is not allowed to ask about the health exemption and you don't need to explain or justify it. So that's a, a bit more of a lax. Uh, and then you've got, uh, this disturbing order. Um, and I'm sure this is others like it in other provinces, but in Alberta on August the 29th, the chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, uh, issued this edict saying, I declare that, and this is interesting, it's not coming from the education minister or the premier, it is the chief medical officer who is acting like uh, a health minister, uh, acting like an education minister saying, I declare that all children in schools shall wear masks uh, subject to some uh, exemptions. And there was a 
kind of a partial relaxation, saying that the kids did not have to wear masks all the time in the classroom, uh, that it was more limited to hallways. And, you know, even there, there was some pushback, I guess, from both sides, from people saying that uh, that just wasn't good enough and the kids should have to wear masks all day long. Uh, and then today on the, on the, uh, on the radio, it was reported that, uh, one of the high schools in Calgary was shut down, uh, because, uh, there's one kid, one child or teenager found to have COVID. And so all the other hundreds and hundreds of students all had to stay home from school. And this is again in a context where we know that it's not a threat to children. And of course, you, you're going to hear the argument, well, it's not about you, it's not about the kids, it's about protecting grandma. To which I say, then please protect grandma. And when you visit grandma, uh, if you're going to risk her life by visiting her, then put on your gloves and masks and stay, stay six feet away from her and uh, try to meet outdoors if you can or meet only in some very large space, not a confined space. Stay six feet away from her and wear a mask. Uh, I, I don't comprehend this, uh, you know, all of society has to come to, come to a grinding halt, which has kind of happened the last six months, uh, an almost complete halt, not a total halt, but you know, the, the whole world has to stop living, uh, in order to protect grandma. And I would ask them, why, why don't you just protect grandma when you visit her? Because we're not helping grandma by, keeping our schools effectively closed and by still keeping uh, gyms closed and keeping our economy functioning at half pace. A lot of restaurants are not going to be able to stay in business when the government only allows them to use half of their capacity. But, you know, this these policies are being implemented by people that in many cases have never run a business. They have no training in or understanding of business or economics or uh, even the important social needs like our basic human need to be in contact with each other and to see each other in person uh, as opposed to being limited only to uh, Zoom interactions. Well, I don't think you need a business degree to know that shutting down a business for four months is going to hurt it. So I'm... You know, but even the reopening, I mean, they, they seem to not understand that right. when you're, when you've got a restaurant, you've got certain costs, uh, you've got, you know, your rent, uh, which could be, you know, even for a small place, $5,000 a month or larger places, uh, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 a month in rental costs alone. And then you've got your staffing costs and you've got your insurance and, uh, and then on top of that, you've got your food costs. But when when somebody opens a restaurant, they're banking on the restaurant being quite full at least some of the time or as often as possible. And maybe your your lunch crowd doesn't do it, but then you're look, hoping for your evening crowd. If you've got every seat in the restaurant is full, then you can generate enough revenue to pay just for the rental costs but when you've got the uh, government telling you that you can only seat guests at, at every second table or that you've got to you know, get rid of a third of your table to comply with this uh, arbitrary six rule that, that tables have to be six feet apart, you can no longer get the customers in, uh, the, the, the requisite amount of customers, just to be able to make the 
rent costs. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure the politicians get that. So a lot of restaurants are open now just because they're already locked into a lease payment and, you know, they might as well try. But when that lease comes up for renewal, uh, a lot of restaurants are going to say, no, we're done. Well, and in fact, a lot of restaurants are just going to go bankrupt and, and terminate the lease earlier because they, they cannot make ends meet when the government says that the place uh, can only be half full or two thirds full. So, okay, so you're seeing a little uh, economic devastation down the road. Uh, when do you think we're going to see the real heavy consequences of this? Before I get back to that other stuff, I just want to see. Well, sadly, they, they they could spiral because they're spinoff effects, right? So the, right. The, the restaurant owner needs customers in order for his business to turn a profit. If the restaurant owner goes bankrupt, that impacts the landlord who may or may not be extremely wealthy, and even an extremely wealthy landlord is going to go bankrupt pretty quickly if uh, a third of his tenants or half of his tenants uh, cancel the leases and say, we're not there for you anymore. Even a landlord is going to go bankrupt. The rest, so, so then the land, the, the landlord who owns the, the premises from which the business is renting is now precluded from spending money on all kinds of stuff, whether it's, uh, okay, fine, maybe your food costs are not going to go down a huge amount, but there's lots of discretionary spending where you could decide, uh, you know, as a guy, you might decide, well, you know, I, I could use a new suit, but uh, a new suit, but I don't need it badly tomorrow. So I'm going to not buy a new suit. Now I'm going to wait for uh, two, four, six, eight, ten 10 months. Uh, you know, <laughs> don't need to go out much anymore anyways, because the social distancing has effectively shut down so many events and conferences and functions. So you get people that delay their clothing purchases. So the clothing industry must be devastated, I would think. And then you've got your, uh, maybe, so you're short on money, uh, you want to buy a new car, but you figure, well, uh, we'll make do with the car that I have for another three, six, nine, 12 months. I don't really need to buy one now. So then the clothing stores and the cars, uh, dealerships are going to get less revenue. And then the people that are employed there, some of them will get laid off. Some of them won't earn the same commission. So they're going to spend less. I see you have this negative spiraling. People spending less causes other people to spend less, causes other people to spend less, causes other people to spend less. And, you know, you've got charities that are going to be hurt financially because if you've just been laid off, if you have a family to support and your $2,000 a month from Curb is not going to cut it and your EI is not going to cut it, people often cut back on their charitable giving. If it's, you know, where the rubber hits the road and you don't, you're not sure you have enough money to pay for the mortgage payments, which by the way, the banks are going to be no longer suspending payments that's gonna Mm -hmm. the chickens are gonna come home to roost this fall september october november december the banks are gonna say okay well time's up we need the regular mortgage payments again and so if you're a family uh you're not sure if you can make the mortgage payments you're not going to give to charity and you're going to cut back on a lot of discretionary spending uh for you know examples i provided clothing uh new car going out to restaurants you're going to cut all your spending so you have this negative spiraling spin-off effects that uh, I, how many 
months or, or God forbid, years is it going to take before you break that negative spin-off cycle of people spending less money, receiving less money, spending less money, receiving uh, less money? You're likely to see a, a terrible downward spiral in the months ahead. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but these things often take uh, a long time, uh, at least, you know, months, possibly years before you get out of this negative cycle and you're back to a positive cycle of people earning money, spending money, and then their spending creates more jobs. And then those people get more money and they spend more money to get back up into an upwards uh, sustainable cycle uh, could unfortunately take a very long time. Right. Uh, you had mentioned uh, December in there and you had mentioned charities. So I guess one of the things we can watch is how well the charities do during the giving season of the Christmas season. That might be a good indicator there. I mean, not good, but I mean, appropriate indicator. It might be, might be bad time. So we'll have to watch out for that. I want well, to go a lot of the, oh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I agree, Kevin. There are a lot of people that do a lot of their charitable giving in December. And so it'll be very revealing in, in December, which uh, I know for a lot of charities is, is a big month. They need a lot of donations in December and it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I, I hope it will be not terrible. Mm -hmm. Getting back to uh, our opening topic here and these cases, uh, these arbitrations with the nurses and whatnot. I know you don't have a case on this right now with the Justice Center, but does do these kind of rulings, these arbitration rulings, these deals, these uh, investigations – would they have any impact in a court of law or can they be cited in a court of law? I mean, is it just a matter of public moving public opinion? Is it useful in any way to recall these things, uh, you know, from a legal perspective? Yes, definitely. The Ontario labor arbitrators decision from December, 2015 uh, can be cited. You're, you're always welcome to cite whatever cases that you want and they are, mm -hmm always persuasive to the extent that the judge considers them to be persuasive. What would happen here if there is a, a court case concerning mandatory mask wearing, uh, whether that was, you know, trying to target one group like, like nurses and hospitals who do not want to get a, a flu vaccine shot or whether it's a, it's a different context. I think this um, December, 2015 uh, labor arbitrator decision, uh, as well as some of the other decisions and rulings, would um, provide a template of the type of evidence. Now, where, where they're not binding authority is that both sides, both the government side and the, the challenger side, could come forward with new studies since 2015. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. We have World Health Organization authorities as recent as June of 2020 saying that there's no compelling science to suggest that wearing masks is going to reduce the spread of a virus. That was June of 2019. So pretty recent. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, sorry, these, these rulings also involve vaccines as well and the compulsion to take a vaccine. I mean, it was, they were using some coercion here, uh, saying you, you either get the vaccine or you're going to wear the mask. If the government comes up with a policy saying, you know, we're going to have this mandatory vaccine can, you know, 
somebody say, well, no, thanks. I'll just wear a mask instead. Uh, you know, something like this. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm thinking, you know, this, this, there's two things going on here and they're very relevant to the pandemic. So I'm just, uh, wondering how this could be, how this could play out, uh, you know, now that this stuff is being brought out into the open. Typically it takes 20 years, 15 years, 10 years to develop a vaccine that is both effective and safe. And I would be, uh, I, myself personally, I'd be extremely skeptical about any vaccine for anything that was invented only three months ago and has not been tested over a number of years. And I, I do not comprehend the enthusiasm for a COVID vaccine in the sense that, well, it normally takes a long time to develop a vaccine. And to my knowledge, everybody is acknowledging that there, to my knowledge, everybody agrees that this virus can mutate, meaning that uh, one vaccine that's developed could very quickly be useless in respect of the new strain so if if COVID mutates the way that the annual flu does, and they are both viruses, uh, I I don't know what uh, I don't know what to say to the governments that are spending billions and billions of of dollars on trying to develop a vaccine that a lot of people are, are going to refuse to take because it's only three months old, has not been tested over time, and the fact that viruses mutate. Uh, to me, it doesn't make any sense that the, the governments are, are throwing billions of dollars at it. Some governments have pre-ordered uh, a vaccine that doesn't even exist yet. Yeah, I know the Canadian government has ordered, I don't know, I keep seeing stories about it. I think we've ordered enough for the next 20 years from <laughs> companies that haven't finished developing this thing. It, it's curious, you know, the uh, the fact that, you know, everybody seems to have forgotten it. And as you mentioned this stuff about the flu, I know you've said it in the past, but now that I've remembered the experience uh, with this vaccinate or mask controversy, all of this was said back then as well. You know, it was, this was the controversy. It was all over the news. And then everybody, as you say, uh, you know, the men in black came out and just zapped our memories. It's funny how much of it is coming back to me now. Well, the underlying. Anyways, they're, they're, sorry. I would, I would go back to the underlying problem, which is the belief that COVID-19 is an unusually deadly killer. And I think it's fine to acknowledge that, yes, it's, it is a particularly vicious virus. Uh, one of the many medical doctors I've talked to told me that, uh, you know, 30% death rate for uh, people over 70 in a nursing home who are already sick with, you know, be it uh, cancer, emphysema, heart disease, diabetes, uh, so on and so forth. So for people who are already uh, already elderly and already very sick, uh, this is probably a more vicious than average virus. Uh, but that's not to say that it's this unusually deadly killer that everybody should be afraid of. And I think that's the underlying problem is that the people around the world have been uh, taught taught in March and April that we should all be very, very afraid of this. And then the I think this fear has been perpetuated by the lockdown measures. I mean, it's one thing for a politician or a chief medical officer to come out and say, oh, we've got a really scary virus, uh, and then perhaps even repeat that. But I think what happens is when... Actions reinforce 
belief. So because we had the lockdown policies that came in place, I think those had a very tangible effect on people's minds when schools were shut and people were told to stay home. I think that effectively was a teaching tool to get people frightened who may not have been frightened previously, and then to perpetuate the fear. And in the same way now, when you've got these mask policies, certainly for airplanes, and then uh, Calgary and Edmonton and other cities mandating mask wearing, when you've got everybody walking around with a mask, it's a continual message. It's a teaching message that we should all be very afraid. And so there's there's that dynamic to it that the fear is actually perpetuated by school closures and uh, stay-at-home orders and mask wearing. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a contingent out there that believes that this is deliberate. And, uh, you know, it's what a great way to enforce your uh, your whatever policy you want to bring in is, you know, just get everybody afraid. It seems to have completely wiped out our charter of rights. You know, I mean, it's... Well, partially for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, you're ever going to get those rights back. That was a subject of our one of our previous podcasts. You have yeah. to fight for them. You have to fight mm. for them. The, uh, the the politicians and uh, you know those who worship health as a god, because I think it's kind of a you know religion of safety that that uh, you know whatever uh, any measure that that brings any kind of physical protection no matter how invasive, no matter how minimal the benefits ought to be our law. And I think that that's, uh, it's one thing to appreciate health. Uh, I certainly do. I appreciate my own and I, you know, value health in, in other people. It's one thing to appreciate something and to place a, a certain degree of value on it. Uh, it's quite another to turn it into a religion where you worship health and are prepared to sacrifice just about anything for the sake of physical health. Yeah, well, we seem to have uh, taken that to an extreme. I wanted to move on just slightly, uh, because it is another mitigation, attempted mitigation for this. I want to focus in on this much-discussed article from the Wall Street Journal, September 1st. Uh, did you see it? This is Donald L. Luskin, the title of which was The Failed Experiment of COVID Lockdowns. And uh, this is where they've done some sort of meta-analysis of uh, death rates in states and, and various jurisdictions to see whether the lockdowns were effective. And I think that they concluded that they really weren't that effective at all based on just pure numbers. Uh, but uh, let me read from the article, and uh, I'll put a link to it uh, down in the show notes below the podcast. It begins, quote, Six months into the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. has now carried out two large-scale experiments in public health. First, in March and April, the lockdown of the economy to arrest the spread of the virus, and second, since mid-April, the reopening of the economy. The results are in. Counterintuitive though it may be, statistical analysis shows that locking down the economy didn't contain the disease's spread and reopening it didn't unleash a second wave of infections. Considering the lockdowns are economically costly and create well-documented long-term public health consequences beyond COVID, imposing them appears to have been a large policy error. At the beginning, when little was known, officials acted in ways they thought prudent. 
but now evidence proves that lockdowns were an expensive treatment with serious side effects and no benefit to society. And then a little farther down in the article, quote, measuring from the start of the year to each state's point of maximum lockdown, which ranged from April 5th to April 18th, it turns out that lockdowns correlated with a greater spread of the virus. States with longer, stricter lockdowns also had larger COVID outbreaks. And then a little farther down, quote, it could be that strict lockdowns were imposed as a response to already severe outbreaks, but the surprising negative correlation, while statistically weak, persists even when excluding states with the heaviest caseloads. And it makes no difference if the analysis include other potential explanatory factors such as population density, age, ethnicity, prevalence of nursing homes, general health, or temperature. The only factor that seems to make a demonstrable difference is the intensity of mass transit use. And then I'll skip a paragraph. Uh, this is not the end, but it is the punchline, I think. Quote, the lesson is not that lockdowns made the spread of COVID-19 worse, although the raw evidence might suggest that, but that lockdowns probably didn't help and opening up didn't hurt. This defies common sense. In theory, the spread of the infectious disease ought to have been controllable by quarantine. Evidently, not in practice, though we are aware of no researcher who understands why not. Unquote. If that's the I case... Think, oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, the, this kind of analysis has also been put out previously where uh, I think the, one of the most interesting charts I saw was... Uh, a bunch of different dots representing different countries. And then uh, on the one side of the bar graph was severity of lockdowns ranging from, you know, very severe, you know, massive restrictions of all kinds to, uh, you know, no lockdowns at all. And then on the other was the uh, deaths per capita. And it was interesting because the dots were all over the map. So you had, you had some places with uh, pretty stringent lockdowns that did have lower death rates. Uh, you had other places with stringent lockdowns that had very high death rates. You had places with very little in the way of lockdowns and low death rates. And you had some places with very little in the way of lockdowns and high death rates. So the dots were all over the map. So there is zero correlation. So I think, I think that you cannot draw any conclusions uh, be because of this, dots being all over the map, I don't think you can assert with evidence that lockdowns are effective or that mm. they are ineffective. It's just that the jury is completely out and that, that there's no discernible uh, correlation between lockdowns and, uh, and death rates. Certainly yeah. in the United States, in the United States, uh, you've got some of the highest death rates in, uh, in the big cities that had severe lockdowns. I mean, New York City had, and it's my understanding, still has very severe lockdown restrictions in New York City. And uh, they had an astronomically high death rate. And there's plenty of other uh, cities and states where they had limited lockdowns and very low death rates. So that's certainly the evidence from the U.S. as well as internationally. Yeah, but then we still have to, I guess, calculate the effect of the lockdowns and all the the damage done by those lockdowns i mean that's got to be 
tabulated as well. And of course, as we mentioned uh, in the previous program, that is uh, some of the work of the Justice Center going to be looking at that. And there'll be other organizations looking at the economics of it. Uh, I guess when we're talking about this, the the idea of, you know, lockdowns work, don't work, we're talking about looking at another wave of this thing or potential flu season as well, you know. Uh, how many times can they go to this well of locking it down before they completely break society? And that's, I guess, you know, what we're grappling with here. Well, on that front, I see some positive signs. The health minister in Germany this past week stated publicly that the lockdown measures were probably too strict and too severe. And if they ever have lockdowns again in the future, they're not going to close hair salons. And he provided other examples. So that was an interesting uh, point. In uh, Florida, the governor has stated that they will not have lockdowns in future if there is another wave because they cannot afford to put hundreds of thousands of people out of work. So there's a public declaration there. And then here in Alberta, surprisingly, uh, I'm going to quote, uh, so this was September the 9th, as far as I know, uh, quote from, uh, from Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, Alberta's belief is that we are not going to micromanage or legislate our way out of this pandemic. We're only going to get through this if people exercise personal responsibility. And that's what we call on all Albertans to do. We want to do everything we possibly can to avoid jerking around people indiscriminately shutting down their businesses, their jobs, and their livelihoods. We have to be focused on the imperative of not just saving lives, but also saving livelihoods. Because the ultimate downstream consequences of constantly shutting down businesses and laying people off will be depression, potentially addiction, huge family challenges, pushing people into poverty, and that is simply unacceptable. Okay. End of quote. Well, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, this okay. is amazing, and I hope this leads to an actual breakthrough where we uh, go back to non-lockdown, go back to regular uh, regular conditions, uh, mm. especially since the, you know, I, I mean, this reminds me of a conversation I had perhaps two months ago with my own uh, elected member of the Legislative Assembly who said to me, well, Sure, yes, you know, I have to admit there's been a lot of damage and destruction and, you know, unemployment and, and, uh, alcoholism and drug overdoses and so on. Uh, she, she, she agreed with me that, that yes, there's been a lot of harm said, but, you know, think about how many people would have died if we had not locked down. And cause in Alberta, we had, uh, currently we have just over 200 deaths which is a very far cry from the 32,000 deaths that uh, Jason Kenney and the chief medical officer were putting forward as a real possibility uh, back in April. And they, they said 30, as many as 32,000 Albertans could die, even with lockdown measures in place. Mm. And now the actual number is 200. And what the politicians are going to say is that, well, it, the reason we have only 200 deaths and not 32,000 is because of the lockdown measures. And yet, um, here's the evidence that we would need to prove that claim that the lockdown measure saved lives. The chief medical 
officer or just the, the health authorities generally on a given date, uh, let's pick the date, March 1st, 2020, they would have to know how many people, and I'll use Alberta as an example, how many Albertans had already been exposed to the virus and um, gotten infected by it, but without symptoms as of March the 1st. How many Albertans would have been already infected with the virus, but asymptomatic as of March the 15th, as of April 1st, as of April the 15th, as of April 30th, and so on? They would need to know that number. They would need to know uh, as between March 1st and March 15th, how fast was the virus spreading? They would need to know what impact uh, was made by keeping the large box stores open, because all the Walmarts and superstores and so on were open and people were going there and people were, you know, touching things. And uh, I've heard one doctor say that the virus can live on plastic for as long as three days. And it's not like they were disinfecting absolutely everything in the store. So you still had people coming to Walmarts and superstores to buy food. You still had a large number of businesses open uh, in spite of the tragedy of so many businesses being shut down. So how quickly was the virus spreading uh, March the 1st, March the 15th, March the 31st, April the 15th, April 30th, how quickly was it spreading? Okay, all of these questions I've asked in the last two minutes, mm. their answer is, we don't know, 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 and we don't know. So you can, they can speculate that the lockdowns may have helped, but they actually have no evidence to support that claim. In contrast, uh, the paper that the Justice Center is working on, we're going to be including evidence on the questions of people dying from cancelled surgery, people dying from cancelled cancer diagnosis, where they're supposed to get their cancer diagnosis and uh, this got you know bumped back by two or three months. Uh, we had a case in BC recently where a woman died uh, because uh, there was a two-month or three-month delay that allowed the cancer to spread all over her body uh, because she didn't get, uh, I forget if it was the cancer treatment or the cancer diagnosis. We've got evidence of people like Jerry Dunham, uh, who died at the age of 46, uh, father of, of two girls, ages six and nine, just before Father's Day, because Jason Kenney and Chief Medical Officer Dina Hinshaw deemed his uh, pacemaker surgery to be non-essential, and his heart was operating at 25% capacity he was not allowed to get his pacemaker surgery because of the lockdowns, and he died. So the report that we're coming up with is going to have actual numbers of different areas of harm. And uh, all the government has is speculation that, that perhaps the lockdowns help to save lives. Uh, but I think they'll be hard-pressed to provide any concrete evidence to support that thesis. Well, based on... What I read in this uh, Wall Street Journal article, yeah, you know, um, just let me quote the last paragraph here. It's pretty short. It's just one sentence. Quote, with the evidence we now possess, 
even the most risk-averse and single-minded public health officials should hesitate before demanding the next lockdown and causing the next economic recession, unquote. So in other words, we have evidence to suggest that, you know, they're they will cause greater harm in totality with the lockdown than uh, people that they would save. So, uh, you know, their claims could actually go in the other direction. In other words, and it might be that the data that you produce and the, uh, the stuff that the, these places that will be studying the economic impact uh, in totality could come out with this evidence. And it could be very harsh uh, on uh, the people that made these decisions what would you uh, like to see in terms of uh, changes for the future? I mean, are you would you like to see it legislative? Would you see, you like to see this court actions? Uh, I know the Justice Center, you know, doesn't. Uh, you're not a public policy house. What would you uh, <clears throat> What would you like to see, John? Yeah, you know, you've been a pretty well, severe critic. So uh, let's say let's put you on the spot. Fix it. <laughs> well, two two things. Uh, first of which won't happen and it will require likely will require the second thing. The first thing that needs to happen is that every province in Canada needs to make a public commitment and a public announcement that they're going to thoroughly study and investigate all of the harms of the lockdown. And that would include all these different areas, uh, people dying from canceled surgery, people suffering uh, permanent health damage because their surgeries were canceled uh, people dying or suffering permanent health damage because their diagnostic procedures were cancelled, people uh, suffering adverse health effects because they had a heart attack but were frightened away from the hospitals because the politicians said that they should be deathly afraid of COVID and they were scared to go to the hospital and they stayed home and they had permanent health damage uh, because of the fear-mongering. Uh, obesity, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, suicide, and um, yeah, the list goes on and on and on. Now, the Alberta government, as just one example, has over 20,000 provincial civil servants, and that excludes the frontline workers. So excluding your nurses, teachers, doctors, uh, policemen, firefighters, social workers, excluding all of the public sector workers that are providing various services to the public, you've got 20,000 civil servants. So the Alberta government has plenty of resources to uh, commence and conduct and conclude a comprehensive study of all the lockdown harms. And so does every other province. And, and collectively, you know, the, the feds and the provinces, and they could collaborate on some of these stats. Uh, you've got hundreds of thousands of civil servants that are available to gather this data and put it into a, a reader-friendly format and issue a full report on all of the lockdown harms. And so that uh, is something that ought to happen. Uh, and so far, no province, uh, to my knowledge, has announced that they're going to actually do this. And so that leads me to my second point, which is that the court actions are going to be necessary to force the governments to do their homework. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you that's got to be the solution. As, as you were talking about that, uh, here's a little incentive for the governments. You know, the fact is, if somebody does an honest study of the harms caused by the lockdowns, that will be studied internationally because of the impact uh, this of this uh, particular 
pandemic, right? I mean, if somebody comes up with an honest study of the harms of the lockdown, they will become, I would say, famous internationally. So there you go. We'll throw that out there to all those 20,000 civil servants. You know, go on, make us proud. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I I just want to move on. Is there anything else you wanted to add on that? I just wanted to hit those two points, the the, the masks and uh, the lockdowns. Uh, I did want to ask you uh, about this uh, recent press release uh, from the uh, Justice Center regarding signage, because I guess there was a bit of a defeat there uh, regarding signs in Alberta on private property. And this uh, looks like a severe blow to free speech, because uh, I think the the government or the uh, the courts ruled that you can no longer put a billboard on your property. Uh, this can you maybe just give us a little background and tell us uh, your reaction to this? The case arose in a um, county south of uh, of Calgary Municipal District that prohibited uh, signage on private property, uh, and this impacted uh, this impacted people financially because there's some property owners that would rent out, uh, they'd have a trailer or a sign or something on their private property. They'd receive some money from a private business to have a sign. And, and also political impacts. There are people that uh, put up a sign on their property. So this would be a kind of rural property alongside a highway. Uh, we're not talking about a you know front yard in a city. Um, but the county, just on the one hand, says that these are a blight, and on the other hand, the county quite happily uh, leases public spaces to Patterson and signage companies that put up big billboards. Uh, some of them arguably very distracting to drivers. You know, they're very colorful. They they change every three or four seconds. You know, they're these kind of rotating electronic billboards. So you've got one sign up, uh, interesting, colorful, designed to grab your attention, and it's on there for three seconds or five seconds or whatever, and then it rotates to the next one, the next one. And so supposedly these uh, these signs on public property are not a blight, and they're not a distraction to drivers, and yet the municipal district goes after private landowners that want to put up smaller and less distracting signs on their own property, and oh, no, no, that's not allowed because it's a visual blight and it's a distraction to drivers. So we took that to court and we unfortunately received an adverse ruling on uh, September the 8th and uh, our claim was dismissed and the court ruled that the subjective sense of aesthetics of some politicians uh, and bureaucrats uh, is more important than a fundamental charter freedom, which is what this is about because your, your freedom to express yourself by putting up a sign on your own property expressing either a political opinion or uh, you're receiving some money from a company to to do some advertising, uh, that this fundamental freedom of individuals is less important than the subjective assessment of politicians and bureaucrats as to what what is or is not a visual blight. Yeah, but let's cut to Chase John here. Wasn't this a case of pro-lifers ruining it for everyone. I mean, it was, didn't that uh, figure in there? It was a pro-life uh, message that was taken. The, well, the pro-life signage was, uh, was, was part, was one example of oh, the, okay. of the expression on, on private property. But even if, 
if you believe in the charter freedom of expression, and this is where a lot of Canadians get confused, you'll hear people say, I support freedom of expression as long as it's not offensive. And it just doesn't work that way because necessarily your freedom to express yourself must entail a right to offend. Not that you're trying to offend, but just as a, as a consequence of it. Mm-hmm. Well, where does this leave us then? I mean, I don't know. Is there room to challenge this ruling then? Because it does seem like a definite slap in the face of a, you know, free speech. I've got my property. I want to put a trailer on it with a sign on it, you know, that says rebel media. I saw one of those when I was driving down to Calgary uh, last month, uh, you know, something like that, you know, that I, I'm going to go ahead and do it and they can't stop me. And apparently they can, they can do that. Eh? Uh, what under there's, what law? Sorry, go ahead. Well, there's this thing known as the Alberta court of appeal and mm-hmm. we're going to discuss it with our clients and we're going to potentially appeal it to the next level because, uh, this is not a good ruling and, um, you know, subject to, to subject to further review, subject to discussions with clients. Uh, there's, uh, we're going to look at uh, taking it to the court of appeal and, and hoping for a better outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, I know John, you're not feeling a hundred percent right now, so I'm not going to push you too hard. Oh, before we sign off, I, just want to make the comment that I hope that we're going to see more politicians coming out with the types of comments that we've heard recently from Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and the German health minister and the Florida governor to the effect that uh, the lockdowns are just too harmful and too destructive. And we've got to look at other ways of dealing with the virus. Right. Yeah. Well, when this started, everybody was calling it a great, social experiment or the large social experiment in the sense great as in the sense of big. And now I guess we could probably say that that experiment, uh, it's starting to look like that experiment kind of failed, but uh, we still have a ways to go before we can make that final judgment. However, we can call an end to this podcast now. So I think we'll uh, do that. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, This is the end of episode 36 of justice with John Carpe. And, uh, well, thanks a lot for being with us, and we uh, will talk to you again soon. Talk to you again soon.